Welcome everyone to the Year 3 podcast. My name's Tom Condon. I'm Rick Sexton. And we're doing a recording today on post-surgical complications, focusing on post-operative fever and wound complications. So why is this an important topic, Tom? So this is an important topic because it's a common call-out for interns and junior doctors. It's also prime examination material, and similarly, it means that the school has a way to sort of assess that you're safe and gives you some great exam questions as well. So our aim today is basically to go over the different causes of post-operative fever, give you a bit of a definition, look at how you might go about managing it and investigating it, and hopefully when you come out of it, you have some sort of common sense approach. So it's more about providing a framework than it is about telling you the details of every surgical complication. Yes, certainly there's so many things which can cause fever, we could not list them all. And then lastly, we'll have a look at wound complications. These are things like infection, hemorrhage, wound dehiscence, and anastomotic leak. That sounds nasty. And then to finish up, while you're all listening, tell you how this applies to year three and how you might be tested on it, and finish with a review question. All right, so how about we go back to some physiology, Tom, and just have a brief overview of what actually fever means. So where is our body temperature controlled, Rick? Is that the hypothalamus? Yeah, that's right. And what sort of things influence the hypothalamus? All kinds of things. I'm thinking cytokines. Couldn't really tell you which which ones. I couldn't either, Rick, but luckily I've looked it up. So that would be interleukin-1, interleukin-6, TNF-alpha, and interferon gamma. Yeah, I certainly don't remember that. So, Tom, just refresh my memory. What is fever and what are the things that cause it? So fever is caused by anything which causes an inflammatory response. This inflammatory response is mediated by things like the interleukins we talked about before. This is commonly thought of as an infectious cause, but it could be anything which causes inflammation. Would that include things like burns and the trauma of surgery itself? Yep, and things like medications and anaphylaxis as well. Okay. Anything that causes an inflammatory response can cause a fever. So is there a strict definition for what fever is, Tom, in the post-operative setting? Well, up-to-date likes to say that it's defined as temperature over 38 degrees on two consecutive post-operative days or over 39 degrees on one post-operative day. But I'm not sure how useful that is. Yeah, and keep in mind that there can be some things that influence temperature as well. So patients who are on paracetamol or NSAIDs or have immunosuppression may not show the same sort of febrile response that a healthy individual would. And remembering the very young and the very old may have reduced ability to generate a huge fever, so we should always consider it in the clinical context. Yeah, some people might be very sick without having a very high fever. So our good friend Doxology likes to say, chronology predicts the pathology. What's that mean, Rick? Well, it sort of means that from the timing post-surgery, we can get an idea of what the pathology might be. So to illustrate that, we've got a case study. So Tom, you're the medical student on the orthopedics ward and your consultants asked you to review a 79-year-old man who's brought in a day ago with a neck of femur fracture. It's been repaired 12 hours ago with a hip replacement and the nurses have now told you that his temperature is 38.5 degrees. So what would your approach be in this case, Tom? Yeah, it's a good case and there's lots of different potential causes for a fever in this man. I think the first thing you want to do would be to speak with the nursing staff who referred the man to you with the fever, get an idea of how sick they are and how urgent you need to see them. Okay, what sort of things would make you just go ahead and call a MET in this circumstance, Tom? Well, anyone that's ticking all the MET boxes, so they're tachycardic, their blood pressure's in their boots, they're breathing really quick, their tissue saturations is really low, all the straightforward things. You know, this is a patient who has a fever and looks sick, or is this a patient who has a fever but is otherwise well, sitting up in bed, 
eating their dinner. Yeah. So just remember that you're not on your own in this and there are MET teams and they're very good at what they do and they can help when you need it. Yeah, definitely. So I guess going back to all the sources of information, uh, we could first look at our admission notes. What sort of things could we look for in the admission notes? So I guess why why were they admitted in the first place? Like obviously in this case, it's a, it's a man who's broken his hip, but in someone who's had a perforated viscous of some kind then you'd have a lower threshold for being concerned about them yeah and perhaps he's fallen over because he's got a pneumonia or he's not too well so we should see if the patient had a fever when he came into hospital that's a good point tom we should also check to see if he's been started on any new medications recently just to be thorough remembering that new medications can cause fever as well to look at his observations during his stay in hospital he may have some past blood results looking at his white cell counts and how they're trending or inflammatory markers like your c-reactive protein additionally someone who's broken a long bone you know they may often have been given blood products because that causes a, a significant bleed in some people hmm. so referring back to that chronology predicting pathology at 12 hours, what do you think is going on, Tom? Well, the hip replacement is a major orthopedic surgery and, you know, the trauma itself of breaking a long bone of that size, I would be thinking that it would be an inflammatory response would be most likely um, if the patient's otherwise generally well. I've heard that atelectasis can cause fevers in this at this time. Tom, what's your thoughts on that? Well, it doesn't really make a whole heap of sense in terms of our cytokine theory, does it? And the recent evidence in terms of reading up-to-date BMJ best practice and many other sites seems to suggest that atelectasis is not a cause of fever, but you'll often find that consultants may like this as an answer. What's your experience? Uh, it's a bit hit and miss. Some of that expected as the answer and then some of it don't believe that atelectasis is cause of fever. So generally speaking, in the first 48 hours, unless the patient had a previous infection, it's unlikely that an infectious cause is causing the fever. As it goes on, it becomes more likely. Okay, sure. Are there any anaesthetic complications that might have caused a fever in this group? Yeah, certainly. Um, have you heard of a complication of malignant hypothermia, Rick? I think I think it's a rare complication of anaesthesia, particularly the volatile agents that um, are used to, to maintain uh, sedation. And yeah, people can get very sick for it. This is just a random one, but what do you treat malignant hypothermia with? You know what? I couldn't tell you. Coolant and dantrolene. Malignant hypothermia is a rare but potentially life-threatening reaction to inhalation anaesthetics generally occurs immediately after the operation and can be triggered by any of the inhaled anaesthetics. What ones do you know of, Rick? I think they talk about desaflurane and sevaflurane, succinylcholine as well, or succinylmethonium, which is the one of the muscle-relaxing agents that they use. Yeah, so I think the take-home point is that there is a rare but important cause of post-operative fever in the immediate post-anesthetic setting, malignant hypothermia. So you've gone back and reviewed this patient, you've had a look at his notes, you've taken a history looking for some localising symptoms such as a cough or dysuria and checking for other risk factors of where he might have picked up a infection. What do you look for in physical exam, Rick? I think, for me at least, I just like to try and keep things as simple as I can. So I just look at the patient to see if they look sick. Are they sweaty? Are they breathing fast? Do they look uncomfortable? Then I'd have a listen to their chest. I'd see if there's some abdominal tenderness. Check things like catheters. Check that there has been some urine output, that it's not blocked. I think it's a good idea to palpate the calves just to make sure there's no signs of a DVT there, even though it's unlikely at 12 hours. I think as well as checking things like urinary catheters, uh, it's also important to check all the IV lines and yeah, yeah. 
you might not want to undress the wound site given that it was only put up 12 hours ago but you might want to just see is it oozing uh, what's oozing is it pussy type stuff or is it blood or is it look clean and you know we certainly wouldn't want to de-sterilize the nice surgical wound but we at least take down the superficial bandages so rick there is one infectious cause of post-operative fever in the first 48 hours what's that um is that toxic shock syndrome I think it's a rare complication of surgical and postpartum wound infections. I think mostly due to staph aureus and group B strep. Are they gram positive or gram negative, Tom? They're gram positives. So patients with toxic shock syndrome present with fever, hypotension, and they also develop a diffuse macular erythroderma, so their skin becomes red. It can be a serious event and shock may follow a multi-organ system failure. Toxic shock syndrome, to my knowledge, occurs more in dirty wounds and is less likely to occur in something like a hip repair. So to continue on the case, you read the notes of your 79-year-old patient and take further history and physical examination. They appear well and are hemodynamically stable. You and your consultant decide not to order any investigations and decide to observe suspecting its normal inflammatory reaction to the surgery. And the patient recovers well, as expected, until day 6, who is again noted to be spiking fevers of 39 degrees. At day 6, what are the potential causes, Rick? Well, I know you mentioned before that the longer it's been since surgery, the more likely it is to be an infective process. And a fever of 39 degrees is pretty high. So I'd be considering things like a pneumonia, a urinary tract infection, a wound infection, some sort of intra-abdominal pathology like an abscess. We'll also consider things like deep vein thrombosis, line infections. So when I say line infections, I mean things like IV site infections or central line infections. So let's go through them from the top. So what would make something like pneumonia more likely? I guess had it been an emergent surgery and uh, the patient hadn't had an opportunity to fast and maybe there'd been some aspiration during the anesthesia, that would make them more likely to have pneumonia? Yes, and I think pre-morbid lung pathology such as if the patient's got COPD or is a smoker or perhaps was even previously unwell it's more likely that a upper respiratory tract infection may develop into a lower respiratory tract infection. How about UTIs Rick? So in patients who I guess are chronically catheterized they're going to be at risk of it and in any patients who've had bladder surgery some sort of urological procedure they're going to be more at risk of it. As you said before, pre-morbid state, so in patients who already have perhaps asymptomatic bacteria beforehand, they might actually develop a urinary tract infection. Someone who's got urinary stasis or, you know, a large prostate and they don't um, empty their bladder very well, that kind of thing. Yeah, it gets a little bit difficult, doesn't it? Someone who's had a urinary catheter in for a long time, you know, you start to get into the argument, is this colonization or is it true infection? But for the case that we're talking about, this man doesn't have a catheter, but perhaps he had one because he's been immobile and hasn't been able to use the toilet easy. And that's often might be the case. And uh, having a catheter in there would be able to introduce pathogens into the urinary tract. What sort of things would make a superficial skin infection, such as the wound infection, more likely? I guess I'm thinking more about systemic diseases in this case. So in patients you have immunosuppression of some kind, the most common of which I would think is diabetes and who, you know, they, have, they might have some lymphedema or heart failure, that kind of thing. So anything that just provides a rich medium from, for bacteria to grow. Yeah, so people with poor nutrition, all, all the things which, like you say, on chronic glucocorticoid therapy, uh, they're immunosuppressed because they have an autoimmune disease and they are being treated with immunosuppression. All these people are more likely to have 
wound infection. And this can be the wounds or it can be the IV sites, anything to do with the skin, they're more likely to get it. So I guess we should cover the non-infectious causes after 48 hours to a week. And these are a little bit more rare, but medications, particularly new ones, can continue to do it. Gout can be triggered off by a massive inflammation or tissue breakdown. Pancreatitis can develop in these patients. They may be um, in alcohol withdrawal. People with a long bone fracture can develop a fat embolism in their lung. And like we've mentioned, a key consideration is pulmonary embolus and DVT. So that should definitely be part of every consideration, even though at a week's time you may be thinking more infectious. Don't forget the PE because it's a potential life-threatening cause. What things might make you more concerned that someone is at risk of a PE? So there's a clinical decision-making score called the WELLS score, which goes through all the pro-coagulation risk factors. So having a previous DVT is one of it, or a PE. Having a family thrombophilic disorder, or having a thrombophilic disorder themselves. Having active malignancy or an infection can make it likely. What's most relevant to most of our patients is they're immobile. Yeah, I think some forms of surgery put patients at particular risk. Things like pelvic surgery, they get pretty concerned about it. Yeah, I wouldn't think people after that would be moving around too much. So Rick, after a week, there's a whole new list of things which may be potentially causing a post-operative fever. What would you consider? Well, it's similar principles to greater than 48 hours, but the things, I guess, become more rare. So things like urinary tract infections, pneumonia, catheter-related intravascular infections due to IV access remain common. C. diff infection usually appears in the second week if it's going to happen, and there's typically history of antibiotic use before the surgery. Yes, yeah, certainly a lot of people have orthopedic surgeries, particularly if they have a prosthesis put in, will be put on some sort of cephalosporin or something like that at the time of surgery. It's not common for them to be prescribed on an ongoing basis, but these things can cause C. diff. Cellulitis can present any time after 48 hours, but deep wound infections and abscesses usually appear after the first week. Is there anything particularly concerning about infections of prosthesis, Tom? Yeah, it's a really nasty scenario. I mean, we're concerned about osteomyelitis in anyone but someone who has a biofilm formed on the prosthesis it's very hard to ever kill all the bugs on that so if someone has that often they'll need to go in and remove the prosthesis altogether you know they can't put a new one in because the site's infected and it's just a messy situation isn't it yeah and these people often need long-term powerful antibiotics to cover bugs like pseudomonas and don't forget, we need to think about PE when it's most common in the second week. So remind me, Rick, how does PE present? Well, it can present in a number of ways. It can be pretty vague, actually, but things that would make me concerned about a PE would be a patient presenting with breathlessness, some chest pain, a decrease in their oxygen saturations, hemoptysis, and if it's really severe, hemodynamic instability. So, Tom, if I were to do an ECG on a patient who I thought had a PE, is there anything that you'd expect? You're not going to trick me here, Rick. You want me to say that S1, Q3, T3, but actually tachycardia is the most common feature. Yeah, that's true. So you'll often hear about this rare thing called S1, Q3, T3, but most common sign of PE is just a sign of tachycardia. And to finish off the rare things which can happen, if there has been colonisation or the patient has previous rheumatic heart disease, things like endocarditis become more common in the one-week to one-month period it's difficult to get a list which is all-encompassing of all the different causes, but we hope that giving some examples gets your mind thinking. Uh, we've provided a table off up-to-date which does have a more complete list of causes, which may be useful for your own reference. 
So Tom, I've heard it discussed before where people use this uh, mnemonic, the five W's. How do you feel about the five W's? I think it's helpful to form a structure like most mnemonics and things like that. I personally don't use it. How about you? I don't mind it just as just as um, a way to kind of structure your thoughts a little bit and keep you thinking about the possibilities. I hear it's from Grey's Anatomy. I've always been a Grey's fan. So what are the five W's? Okay, so from one of my favourite resources, Wikipedia, uh, the first one they say is wind, and that's mostly referring to things like atelectasis, like we controversially mentioned before, pneumonia, particularly aspiration pneumonia. Then it's water, which implies urinary tract infection and catheter-associated infections. Wound, which is days five to seven, and that's, you know, surgical sites, etc. The next one's pretty weak but they call it wabscess as in like an infection of an organ or a space after that there's walking which is days five to seven as well so i should say days five to seven includes wound wabscess and walking walking meaning dvts and then wonder drugs which is like anything we gave them in new drugs that we introduced line infections and then the last one which is pretty thin as well is wing or waterway which just means like bloodstream infections that sounds like way more than five w's to me rick and i'm not so sure about wabscess should have counted one, two, three, four. Okay, let's just call it wind, water, wound, walking, wonder drugs. That's five, right? That sounds good to me. If this helps you, so be it. Sometimes it's good just to use a common sense approach and keep you... So we've spent quite a bit of time on fever. We should probably wind up and speak about wound and wabscesses. So what are some of the things that can happen to a wound? So we've just talked a whole heap about infections. So this can be a superficial type cellulitis or just affecting the sutures themselves. Um, you can have hemorrhage or hematoma form beneath. And, you know, the hemorrhage can be significant enough to become hemodynamically unstable. What other things, Rick? There's this word that I find hard to say, de dehiscence. I think it gets abbreviated to just dehist. And that's where the wound... So the sutures or whatever is the staples that are holding the wound together, um, the tissue underneath them deteriorates and the wound opens up again. Yeah, that sounds nasty. I think I think that's an easy diagnosis to make when the intestines are spilling out over the patient's gown or gurney. It can happen though, I think. I remember on one of the BMJ questions that there'll be like a new onset of clear exudate out of the wound and that may suggest that the wound's dehissed. Yeah, they're not all as graphic as I said. Uh, anastomotic leaks, the other one we were going to talk about, and that's less obvious as well. What would that present like? Well, probably abdominal pain and fever as well. And this is more likely to occur in your colorectal patients who have had a cancer cut out of their bowel. And it might have been a difficult or prolonged surgery and the bowel that they were trying to heal up just wasn't as healthy as they'd hoped. And poo started leaking out of the anastomosis into the abdomen. So we mentioned it before, but we should go over it again just for a rapid review. So the things which might affect tissue healing or the ability for the wound to heal properly would be things like the nutrition status. Vitamin C. Whether they're a smoker or a diabetic. Their vascular health. If they're on glucocorticoids. Their age. Their immune status. The most important and common consideration in wound healing will be blood glucose control and people with diabetes who have impaired microvascular disease as well as macrovascular disease as well as neuropathy. So 
they've really got all the potential factors to have a tricky to manage wound. Remembering some wounds may be complicated by either arterial or venous insufficiency and that wound care will differ for each of them. We will cover arterial and venous wounds in another recording. So say someone has a wound that's looking a little bit red, Rick, and may be spreading a little bit beyond the wound edges what would be your standard approach an approach well i want to see is the patient well to begin with so what how do they look do they have a fever you know am i concerned about them i probably consider marking the borders of the erythema with a marker pen of some kind to note progress and then i'd consider you know are they on antibiotics to cover an infection already or do i need to commence some antibiotics for this infection what am i missing here tom i guess we consider before starting any new antibiotics would be to swab the wound to see if we can grow their organism that's a good point if the patient was hemodynamically unstable we could get some blood cultures it's always helpful to check the kidney function when you do this as well as getting a full blood count your blood glucose and an INR if the wound is bleeding significantly and is on known anticoagulation so depending on what sort of surgery the patients had different organisms are more likely to be grown so for most of the superficial ones what's normally grown oh it's i guess it's things that normally live on the skin tom things like Staph aureus, streptococcal infections, which is strep pyogenes, I think. Yeah, so that's for things like breast surgery, head and neck surgery, cardiothoracic surgery, most of the neurosurgeries. It's really just when we start talking about abdominal surgery or gynae surgery that we start to be concerned with gram-negative bacteria and anaerobes. What are some of the examples of nasty gram-negative infections that we might get, Tom? Well, the most common one is E. coli. So given most wounds will be gram-positive colonized, what antibiotic would we use typically? As long as I'm not concerned about MRSA, which is another issue, um, I'm going to try and cover gram-positives and I need an antibiotic that gets to the skin well. So flucloxacillin, Tom? Yeah, that's right. And for abdominal surgery, when we're concerned about gram-negative bacteria, the triple therapy that you you often hear about is gentamicin, metronidazole, and amoxicillin. Gentamicin typically covers gram-negative bacteria. Ampicillin covers mostly gram-positive. And metronidazole is for anaerobic cover. And the alternative to that in patients who I thought who are very sick is um, tazacin which is a combination of piperacillin and tazobactam. Keep in mind, in the case of abscesses, all abscesses need to be drained before being treated with antibiotics. So what about the wound that's bleeding, Rick? What's your general management for that? Well, I want to stop the bleeding, Tom, as best I can. I'd be uh, applying some direct pressure. I'd be making sure that they're not hemodynamically unstable. Yeah, that's right. And depending on where the wound's bleeding from, you may have to use certain devices. Have you heard of something called the rapid rhino, Rick? Ah, it's for epistaxis, I think. The nosebleed. It's a balloon tampony thing that you shove up the nose and blow up. Uh, There's many uses of tamponade-type devices to cause direct pressure. I guess keep in mind too that in some, if you suspect surgical bleeding, there may be no way to stop the bleeding other than calling your boss and getting them to open the abdomen and fix the bleeding. Exactly. And the and that applies also for wound dehiscence and anastomotic leak. It's all about establishing IV access, resuscitating and keeping the patient alive until they can be surgically repaired. Yeah, that sounds good. Review question. 
Tom, we've got this review question just to try and refresh our knowledge of what we learnt today. So the question is, a 65-year-old woman with a long history of constipation presents with steady left lower quadrant abdominal pain. Physical exam reveals low-grade fever with mild abdominal distension and lower left quadrant tenderness. Stool guaiac test is negative. An absolute neutrophilic leukocytosis and a left shift are noted on laboratory blood tests. She's placed on broad-spectrum oral antibiotics, bowel rest, and morphine for pain. Her symptoms do not seem to improve over the next day, and the decision is made to proceed to a sigmoid colectomy with primary resection and anastomosis. The procedure is uncomplicated, and she is recovering as expected until noted to have a temperature of 38.3 on post-operative day 3. What do you think is the most likely cause of this fever, Tom? So the options we've got here is A, wound infection, B, deep vein thrombosis, C, atelectasis, D, abdominal abscess, or E, urinary tract infection. So we can talk through some of these answers. So a wound infection, unless unless it was a dirty procedure, that's pretty unlikely, isn't it, Tom? Yeah, especially at day three. And I think what the question's getting at, left lower abdominal pain, is that this patient's had a diverticular perforation so they're trying to get you to say you know is this abdominal abscess she would have had that irrigated and cleaned up in there and it's still probably a little bit too early for things like that and the other options are deep vein thrombosis atelectasis and urinary tract infection so i think this question it's unlikely to be atelectasis because it's it's maybe it's day three it's probably too far post-surgery and if we were to remember the general principle that the further post-operative the least likely it is to be a non-infective cause so we should be thinking an infective cause for this fever. Could be pneumonia, but that's not an option here. The DVT possible, but the presentation's not exactly like a DVT, and it's probably too early in the piece. So the key wording in the question is, what's the most likely reason? Things like an abdominal abscess could be possible, but these things are never going to be as likely as something like the common urinary tract infection, which affects a lot of ladies. So the answer is E, urinary tract infection. So that's all we have for wound complications and post-operative fever. We hope it's been useful. Thanks for listening. Until next time. See you later. Hi guys, it's Tom here again, just chiming in to say thanks for listening and to do some housekeeping. We have recently upgraded some of our recording equipment to improve audio quality and we are looking to involve more fourth years in these recordings for some variation. We are also toying around with some format ideas and we would appreciate your thoughts on what has worked and what has not. Feedback is crucial to making these recordings as high yield and enjoyable as possible. You can either talk to me or other hosts on the wards or shoot me a message to let us know your thoughts. Until next time, thanks again.